Good morning, good afternoon, or maybe even good evening, depending on what time it is when you are listening. If you have been following along with the videos, then you will know that this is not Ben, that it is Zach, and it is my privilege, as always, to be preaching to you. Uh, even as we are unable to gather, maybe even especially as we are unable to gather, it is a great privilege and uh, blessing that we can still stay relatively connected through technology. Like many American children, I grew up playing baseball. I was a good enough player and stuck with it through high school. There was a stretch of time, probably a season or two, where I struggled pretty pretty bad. And so to get out of this slump, I asked my brother to do some extra work with me. My brother is three years older than me, and uh, in fact, this Sunday, May 3rd, is his birthday, ironically. Um, but he wasn't just older, he was significantly better than me at baseball, and this extra work paid off. I snapped out of my slump, it was great, um, but he gave me some advice that has stuck with me, and I guess it really only pertains to baseball, but I think it'll help set up my sermon this morning. He says, he told me that baseball is a funny game, that when it comes to batting, the best baseball players in the world fail the majority of the time. Guys, get into the Baseball Hall of Fame with a failure rate over 65%. Over 65% of the time, they are not hitting the ball. Could you imagine going to a concert where the musicians miss over 65% of the notes? Or heaven forbid you ever find a surgeon who failed over 65% of the time. But baseball allows for a 65% failure rate. Not only does it allow for it, it celebrates it. That's the nature of the sport. The mark of a successful batter is getting a hit 35% of the time. So what is the mark of a successful life? Can you fail 65% of the time and still be successful? Or is the mark of a successful life a fulfilling job that pays the bills? Is it, a, is it good health, a, a beautiful home, a loving family, a relaxing retirement, or some combination of these things. At what point can you look at your life with satisfaction and say, this is good? Well, I'm going to leave that question hanging there and I, I, I better pray before we go any further. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you um, for your kindness in giving us, giving to me this wonderful church to be a part of and the privilege to serve here, the opportunity to preach, uh, to preach your word. Lord, I pray that this sermon, however it's heard, um, would be a blessing that uh, you would move in me as I preach it, that I would feel it before uh, I, anyone else does, and that you would um, speak through me uh, to anyone who is listening, God. I pray that um, the families of Prairie View, as we have been separated these several weeks, uh, we would be worshiping you as uh, we gather in our homes, or maybe we're by ourselves, that that worship would continue, that you would look at us and on us in our homes and and be pleased with what you see. Um, Thank you, God, that you are with us, that we don't have to show up to a building um, to have you near to us. But also, God, I pray that we would be able to return um, and return safely and soon um, because there is something special. There's something that we can't have when we're sitting in our homes by ourselves. Um, So I just pray that uh, as things move forward, we would be able to be reunited again. But for now, God, that these sermons, that these different things that we're putting out would uh, be honoring to you and be encouraging to our family. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
So the question is, what is a, the good life? What is a good life? What is the mark of a good life? When the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, Jesus says this. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So what does Jesus say is the marker of a successful life? A secure soul. What is the point of a fulfilling job or good health or a beautiful home, a loving family, a relaxing retirement, or even some combination of those things if you lose your soul. Now, I realize that this sermon is going to cover some pretty basic principles of Christianity, and if you are a Christian, this is all familiar to you, I encourage you to take it to heart and be reminded of these truths again. These are not simple ideas that we can leave behind us. They are the foundation upon which everything else is built. And so I hope you will find this to be as refreshing to you now as it has ever been. That being said, success can look very different depending on what you're dealing with. But a successful life is marked by a secure soul. So what is a secure soul? Well, you could probably tell me whether you're sitting on your couch, mowing the lawn or driving in your car. You probably have a notion of what it means to have a secure soul. Security of soul suggests some kind of happy existence after death. And throughout all of human history, it has been far more common to believe in life after death than not. And while these beliefs differ from religion to religion and culture to culture, the fact remains that it is most natural for humans to desire immortality. It is death not eternal life, that seems to be strange. Now, we as Christians believe that God has spoken to us in his word, which means what we find in his word is the truth. And it is it's not one truth among many truths, but the truth. Anything that disagrees with what God himself has revealed is not a matter of debate or difference of opinion, no matter how well-intentioned it is a falsehood. So how has God defined a secure soul? What are the grounds for eternal life according to God's own word? Well, secure soul is one who both knows and is known by God. In John 17:4, Jesus himself equates God, knowing God with eternal life. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Again, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 7 and Luke 11 that God is a loving Father who gives good gifts. So knowing God is not like reciting facts from an encyclopedia, but relating to him as a child to a perfectly loving Father. And knowing God means we are connected to the one who gives good gifts, who meets our needs and then some. Knowing God is also our future hope. It is our eternal destination. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about our future with Christ. When things will finally make sense, what will we know fully? We will know God as fully as our minds can possibly comprehend. The Psalms are filled with this notion. To know God, to be in his presence, is the height of all safety and satisfaction. 
Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's desire was to know God. It was the one thing he was seeking. But there are two sides to this coin. It's not enough that we know God, we must be known by him. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul makes this point. In Galatians 4, verses 7, 8, and 9, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? Once you were a slave to sin, but now you are a child and an heir of God. You have been given new privileges and benefits as a child that were not yours as a slave. And what changed? Before, you didn't know God. Or rather, you were not known by him. Again, to know God is to know him as a loving father. And to be known by God is to be loved as a child. To be known by God is to belong to him. Belonging to God, along with knowing God, is our hope. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. To be known by God is to belong to him, and it is the difference between heaven and hell. Jesus in Matthew 7 Verses 21, 22, and 23 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What you have done or claim to do, will make no difference if you are not known by God. Knowing and being known by God is the difference between the final verse of it is well, being a moment of unspeakable joy or unspeakable terror. The words of that final verse are this, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so... It is well with my soul. One day when Christ returns, what we have only believed by faith will become visible to us. Our faith will become sight, but it will be a hard day for many. Isaiah 34 and Revelation 6 both talk about the sky being rolled back like a scroll, preceding God's wrath and judgment. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus tells his disciples not to fear those who can destroy the body but can't do anything else. Rather, to fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. And when the clouds roll back like a scroll, the only thing that we should fear, according to Jesus, will have arrived. The one who can throw both body and soul into hell. When the trumpets blast, the world will tremble in fear. Even so, you don't have to be afraid. Even so, you can say on that day, it is well with my soul, if you belong to the Lord. 
A secure soul both knows and is known by God. And a successful life is marked by a secure soul. Now you might wonder, why don't I know God already? If he's so big and great, why don't we know him from birth? Why do so many people seem not to know God? What is stopping you or me or anyone else from finding, from knowing God and finding security with him? What's well, like this? It's imagine a soccer field. There is a team in red and a team in blue. There is only one soccer ball. This is just a normal game of soccer. In a normal game of soccer, both teams are trying to kick that one single ball into the other team's goal. So everything that the red team does is to score goals. And if the red team is scoring goals, the blue team isn't. And vice versa. Both teams can't be winning at the same time. Their goals are opposed to each other. They're on opposite ends of the field. Sin Sin is like that. It's not just that we've offended God's sensibilities by breaking some rule. We are kicking the ball in the opposite direction. God's glory is his goal. Sin's goal is to be our own gods. It implies that God is not good enough for us. It robs God of his glory. Those are fundamentally different goals, and the ball can't be going both places at the same time. The reason we don't know God as father and are not known by God as his children is because we hate him. With every sin, our lives tell God that his goal is not worth our time. We'd rather spend our time in our lives doing something else. This began in the Garden of Eden with Adam, and it continues to this day in each one of our hearts. Romans 8, 7 describes it like this. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is set on sin, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Isaiah 59 also describes a separation between God and man that is caused by our sins. We are at odds with God. Our goals are in opposite directions, but we are not playing a game of cosmic soccer. We are enemies with the king of heaven, rebels against his cause and kingdom, and our disobedience brings guilt on our heads. And chances are you are familiar with this next verse. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. In James 1.15 we read something similar. It says, Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. The Bible plainly teaches that sin leads to death. On the one hand we are to understand this is God's doing. God actively puts sinners to death. Romans 6 teaches us that rebels are dealt death as their wage by God. On the other hand, James teaches us that death is the fruit of sin. So just as an apple tree by its very nature will produce apples, the tree of sin by its very nature produces the fruit of death. If God is the source of life and breath and the giver of every good gift, then separation from that source can only ever lead to death. God is not angered, finally reaching his breaking point and rampaging through creation to destroy people because he's bloodthirsty. God is simply bringing about the inevitable end of all sin, and he is doing so as a victorious king who will not tolerate enemies in his land. And the Bible plainly teaches in Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is the Lord's. So when we approach this situation on the Bible's terms, we are no longer asking why everybody doesn't know God. Instead, we will wonder how it is possible for any of us to have peace with him. 
The third verse of It Is Well, as we continue to work backwards through the hymn, points back to the very moment in history when God made peace possible. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. If sin is the very thing that will ruin you, what could possibly turn your sin into a blissful and glorious thought? Only this, that your sin has been dealt with and not at the price of your own head. The penalty for your sin, all of it, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through his death on the cross, Christ suffered the punishment of your guilt and my guilt and the guilt of the world. Isaiah, Isaiah 53 speaks of God's coming servant who would deliver God's people from their sins and the judgment attached to that. Beginning with Isaiah 53, 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Apostle Peter picks up on this theme, these same ideas in 1 Peter 2. He says, he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the death of Christ, your sins have been dealt with. They have been removed from God's view. God does not dwell on your sins because the, the score has already been settled. He will not punish your guilt again because your guilt has been handled and punished in Christ. Your sins have been covered. This is what is often referred to as atonement. The atonement was the covering of your sins by the blood of Christ on the cross. And as a result of Christ's atonement, you have been reconciled to God. There is now peace where there was once enmity. The demands of God's holiness are met in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The demands of God's justice are met in his sacrificial death. But most importantly, the cross of Christ meets the demands of God's love. It has become somewhat popular to refer to the ordinary Christian understanding of Christ's death as a form of divine child abuse. Shortly followed with something like, I can't believe in a God like that. So the cross must then be explained away, always resulting in something that is definitively not Christian. But the cross is not a picture of an angry God being satisfied with the blood of his helpless, innocent child. Jesus himself says that he lays his life down willingly. He was an active participant in our salvation. There was no reluctance, only love, love to do what was necessary to bring many sons and daughters to God. First John four, verse 10 says this in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It does not say in this is the justice of God or the holiness of God, but the love of God. 
The love of God is displayed in the extreme lengths he is willing to go in order to save not good people, but to save sinners, to save enemies. On the cross, as one author has put it, we see the intensity and strength of his love, majestically strong as it faces death, battles evil, and gives life. You can know and be known by God because the death of Christ has atoned for your sins and reconciled you to God, satisfying the demands of God's holiness, justice, and love. A successful life, again, is a secure soul. A secure soul both knows and is known by God, and you can both know and be known by God because of Christ's work on your behalf. But how does that help you today? Sure, it secures your life eternally, but what good is it for you now? Well, let's turn our attention once again to the hymn, now looking at verse 2. It says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. In this life, there will be trials, and not just any trials, but trials of temptation to sin, trials of temptation to evil. First Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We might be sad when we are attacked in this way, but we should not be surprised. And in these moments, when you are put to the test, tempted with sin, you may very well fail. You may fall into sin. And this will happen to you for the rest of your life. And if you ever manage to put that one sin that has bothered you for so long, if you ever manage to put it to death, to not be bothered by it anymore, the enemy will find another foothold for sin. And a new battle will begin. When that happens... You can have confidence. You can have blessed assurance that your hope, your standing with God, does not depend on your own ability to keep his law. That your soul security is founded upon the shed blood of Christ. That God knows your weakness and doesn't expect you to be strong. That Christ is strong on your behalf. That he is your righteousness. Knowing and being known by God is not a matter of your own perfection. When Satan comes and causes you to stumble, all is not lost. Look to the cross. Remember that Christ has died for your sins, not in part, but the whole. When everything is said and done, you can say, it is well with my soul. Which leaves us finally with the very first verse. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot You have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In John 10, Jesus teaches that he is the good shepherd. This passage is full of language of knowing and being known. The good shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. His sheep know his voice and they follow him. And in this passage, Jesus also teaches that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There is no better place for a sheep than to be under the watchful eye of the Good Shepherd. To know and be known. 
Jesus is almost certainly comparing himself here to the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Whether in green pastures beside still waters or in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall not want. When I have peace like a river or sorrows like sea billows roll, I shall not want. Why? Because I know and am known by the Lord. My soul is secure. My life is a success. Now here's a a fun fact that you might not know. When Hannah and I got married, our very own Ben Halliburton officiated the wedding. Uh, He has since become a seasoned veteran when it comes to weddings, uh, but proudly I can say our wedding was his first. And in the wedding process, and even the day of our wedding, Ben gave us some advice. And I'd be curious to know if anyone else has gotten this advice from him since. He told us this. He said, no matter what happens during your wedding, if you are married at the end, it's been a success. There are lots of moving parts in a wedding. There's the food, the music, the venue itself, the pictures, the guests, the weather, on and on and on. But what's the point of any of it if the bride and groom aren't married when all is said and done? A successful wedding is marked by marriage. That's not to say you can't be disappointed when things don't work out. Our wedding day was terribly hot, and there were some people who didn't make it. But did that make our wedding a bust? No, absolutely not. Like Ben said, we still got married. And my advice to you, whoever you are and wherever you are listening, is similar to Ben's advice on my wedding day. No matter what happens during your life, if your soul is secure at the end, it has been a success. That doesn't mean that there won't be disappointments and grief. But if you know there's a happy ending, then you will always have a reason to rejoice. That is precisely what our hymn, It Is Well, does. It was written by a man who had known terrible tragedy. Horatio Spafford lost a four-year-old son before losing most of his money in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Two years later, he was scheduled to travel to England with his family, but he was held up by some business demands. So his wife and four daughters traveled ahead of him, but the ship they were on sank at sea after colliding with another vessel. All four of his daughters died in the accident, with only his wife surviving. Shortly thereafter, while traveling to England to bring his wife back home, Horatio Spafford passed over the very spot where his four daughters had drowned and wrote this very song. As a church, we have experienced tragedy and heartbreaks in recent months. Not to mention the countless unspoken heartaches that visit each one of us. Not to mention the added stress of our current global crisis. But the peace that touched Horatio Spafford is available to you. You can know and be known by God. Your soul can be secure. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for music. Thank you for good music. Thank you for music that helps us to remember the truth that you have spoken to us in your word. God, that memorizing scripture is not always the easiest thing, but sometimes songs get get stuck in our heads and we can't forget them even if we want to. And so I just thank you for the, the truth that we have rehearsed over these past few weeks as we've looked at some of these timeless hymns. Lord, thank you um, for this gospel, the, the basic gospel that we are sinners, that we deserve death, and that Christ died in our place to save us. 
And that if that is true, there is nothing that can take us from your hand. That there is no condemnation. Nothing can separate us from your love. God, I pray that that gives us hope for eternity, but also gives us confidence now. Um, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of all of the changes happening in our world, in the midst of the, the heartbreaks and the heartaches that we, um, as a church family, are dealing with. Thank you for the comfort that you have given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. It's, his, it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.